Sunday in a series that we've been calling We Are Chosen, going through 1 Peter. Today's the last Sunday. We're going to be going through chapter 5, and I want to just give you sort of a, a framework of where we've been so far in this series. The first thing that we've been noticing is that our society, American Christianity, and in fact Americanism, wherever you find it, is based on a principle that I've been calling the rugged individual for the past few weeks. The, the persona of the individual who, who can make something out of nothing, who can pick them up from their own bootstraps, who can blaze a trail when no one else blazes the trail. We love these stories. We love the story of the person who knows what's right, pursues what's right, chases down what's right, achieves what they think is right, and they don't even care how it affects the rest of the world. We love those stories when it affects the rest of the world rightly. We don't love those stories when it affects the rest of the world poorly. But until we know the effects, we love the individual. Now, you might not like the aggressive individuals in your life, but all of us have some aggressive individual that we have idolized in our lives. I'm amazed at how many people thought the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles were their coolest childhood toy. When you think about, you know, this picture of a helpless little animal suddenly becoming empowered to take the world on. We love the stories of the individual who suddenly has the ability to do whatever it is they want to do because we all want to be that individual. We all want to be the individual who takes destiny in our own hands and makes it happen. That is, we want to be that individual as long as we're looking to the future. None of us want to think of ourselves as that individual when we're looking to the past because when we look to the past, a lot of us have problems in our past. And we don't want to be the person in charge of our destiny if today is destiny. If tomorrow is destiny, I want to be in charge of my destiny. But if today is destiny, I don't want to be in charge of that. I don't want to be the person to blame for the way I ended up today. A lot of us have this sense that when we look back, the existence of rugged individual thinking makes us look back into our past with a sense of shame sense of guilt. And for those of us who've had a measure of success, we look back at our past with pride. Look what I did to get me here. Look what I did to achieve all this. This individualism is a problem because it builds depression and pride inappropriately in us, and it gives us a sense of the future that is also inappropriate. I've been saying for the past couple of weeks that individualism is our biggest human problem. But luckily, God has given us a solution. And his solution is simply these three words. We are chosen. See, when God chooses us, he removes from us our agency. It doesn't mean that we're not responsible for anything that we've done. It means we are not responsible for our destiny. God has chosen us. He's made us. He's created us. And underneath his choosing, now we respond to him. He has chosen to make his son our savior. And we respond to him by saying, thank you, we believe. Help us in our unbelief. This idea of God choosing us is an uncomfortable thing for Christians. Because in America, at least, we love to be in charge of even our own spiritual destiny. 
There's a major debate among Christians. In fact, years ago, about a hundred years ago, Christians would kill each other based on whether or not they believed that God chose them or they chose God. One group of people would say, God chose us. Another group of people said, we choose God. And those two people would kill each other, apparently to introduce the other side to God so that God could set them straight. But the point is, we are people who resist this idea that God's in charge. But I want to show you some passages from the Old Testament that highlight this before we even get into our first Peter chapter five. Here's one from Deuteronomy chapter seven. I love Deuteronomy. I know a lot of people don't like it so much, but I love it. It says, the Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Moses is saying to the Israelites, God didn't see you in Egypt and pick you because he thought you were cool. God saw you in Egypt and recognized that he had made a promise to your ancestors. He chose Abraham. And because he chose Abraham, he has to choose you because God is faithful. And so God chooses you not because of you. He chose you because of him, a promise that he had made. And at the end of Deuteronomy, Moses is talking about what the people are going to be like once they finally find success. And he says, when you finally find success, you're going to be tempted to think of yourself. Look at what my hands have done. And Moses says, you're not going to do that. This is what you're going to do when you enter that land. I'll put it up here. He says, when you've entered the land, the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance and have taken possession of it and settled in it. Take some of the first fruits of all that you produce from the soil of the land the Lord your God is giving you and put them in a basket. Then go to the place the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for his name and say to the priest in office at the time, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come to the land of the Lord, the land the Lord swore to our ancestors to give us. The priest shall take the basket from your hands and set it down in front of the altar of the Lord your God. Then you shall declare before the Lord your God, my father was a wandering Aramean and he went down into Egypt with a few people and lived there and became a great nation, powerful and numerous. Just pause there for a second. He says, part of your vow when you bring to God your offering is this. My father was nothing. He was a wanderer. He wasn't even a Jew. He was a foreigner. My father was nothing until God made him something. But the Egyptians mistreated us and made us suffer, subjecting us to harsh labor. Then we cried out to the Lord, the God of our ancestors, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our misery, toil, and oppression. So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great terror and with signs and wonders. He brought us to this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now I bring the first fruits of the soil that you, Lord, have given me. Place the basket before the Lord your God and bow down before him. Then you and the Levites and the foreigners residing among you shall rejoice in all the good things the Lord your God has given to you and your household. God says to his people, you're going to be tempted to think that you have made this happen for yourself. And he says, the reason I'm creating the tithe, the reason I'm creating this principle of bringing to God your first 10%, is to remind you that all of it is a blessing from me. 
And so that the people in your midst may be blessed as well. God says, I'm going to intentionally give you more than you need. Because through you, I want you to be a blessing to others. Today is Gratitude Sunday. It's important that we remember what the principle of the tithe is all about. But it fundamentally is about an anti-individualistic mindset that God has tried to put into his people since the day he made them. And so, what I want to do is I want to remind you of the lessons we've learned so far. Lesson number one, we are chosen by God for his purpose. Not our purposes, his purposes. Number two, we were chosen to display God's holiness. Not how good we are, we were chosen by God to display how good he is. And number three, God chose me to make me a blessing in response to suffering. Here's the verse we ended last week with, 1 Peter 4.19. It says, So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. It's an interesting verse there, isn't it? This idea of people suffering according to God's will. We don't like the idea of suffering, much less the idea that some of our suffering might be because God wants it. We don't like that idea. But the book of 1 Peter is an essential book for us to fully understand, even if we don't like the ideas. And I believe it's perfectly applicable to us today. I've taken a lot of time to introduce these concepts, but there's one more thing I need to say before we actually get into 1 Peter 5. You need to know something I haven't told you yet about Peter's day. Peter's day and our day contrast in great ways. I read that verse about us enduring suffering. And I know a lot of us, our minds go to the things we're facing today. Our minds go to the things we're dealing with now. We're saying, okay, so I'm, I'm facing COVID-19. I'm facing isolation. I'm facing quarantine. I'm facing a job market that's not conducive to the life I want to live. I'm facing financial hardships. I'm facing church hardships. There are all kinds of things I'm facing. I know we're all facing things and we're viewing those things as if they're suffering. But you have to realize the difference between Peter's day and our day is astronomical. In our day and age today, We, Christians in America, are experiencing the greatest amount of religious favor that we have ever had in the history of the world. Never before has any culture ever been so friendly to Christianity as is ours. And I know some Christians feel like they're being persecuted. I have felt that way. I've used that language before in my own life. But the truth of the matter is, a hundred years ago, as I said earlier, Christians were killing other Christians for not having the same perspectives on things. So even though some people thought that times were better back then, no, they weren't. Even Christians were against other Christians. Catholics and other views of Christianity, sects, denominations, whatever they are, they all were fighting each other desperately, even to the point of murder. And yet today, the two major political candidates 
in our country running for president will never say a bad word about Jesus or the Christian faith. Christians today have never experienced as much freedom as we currently have. But Christians in Peter's day were regularly being killed, not for their behavior, and not even for the tenets of their faith. Really just one thing. Well, there were two reasons why Christians back then were being killed. Reason number one is that they didn't fit the stereotypes. They didn't fit the systems. You see, there were two acceptable religions, the Jews and the Greeks. And even though the Romans were Romans, they accepted all of the Greek gods as if the Greek gods were great because the Greek gods were really old. They went back hundreds of years. And the Jewish God was also really old. He went back thousands of years. But Jesus, he died like a couple months ago. Jesus died in this century. And so the Jews were accepted. The Greek pantheon of gods were accepted. But Christians were not. Because they didn't fit. They were this newfangled thing of people worshiping a human who they claimed died and rose again as if that made any sense. And so they were being killed. Your Savior died. How about you die too? Let's see if you come back. The second reason they were being killed is that they would never say the word Caesar is Lord. You see, Christians had adopted that new concept that Jesus is Lord. And every year, Caesar would ask citizens to pay a tax, and part of the tax was to declare with your mouth that Caesar is Lord. And Christians had a hard time doing that. And so they would not. And Caesar, upset at their insolence, would throw them in prison and kill them. Jews killed Christians. Romans killed Christians. It got so bad that even at some point, Christians became the entertainment of the day. When Nero lit Rome on fire to create havoc so that he could be the leader over that recovery process... Nero decided to blame the Christians for the fire in Rome. And to make their punishment fit their supposed crime, he would put them on stakes and light them on fire in the middle of Rome to light the city at night. To throw them in coliseums where they would fight in the gladiatorial combat and be killed by vicious animals. These things were going on in Peter's day. So when Peter writes to his audience about suffering, they knew something we didn't know. In fact, I want to go backwards and show you 1 Peter 4.19 one more time. Put it up here on the screen. It says, So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. How hard is it to trust a God who just sent your mom to fight a lion. How hard is it to trust a God who claims that He is the Lord, but when you say that, you get stabbed? How hard is it to trust a God and continue to do good? 
Listen, I don't want to minimize your suffering in these days. I would love to minimize my suffering in these days, but I don't want to, I don't want to denigrate your experience. What I want to do is say, if the Christians of old could encounter what they did and continue to do good, then I believe you and I have been called to continue to do good in our world today, no matter what we face. And so, 1 Peter 5 says these words, to the elders among you. Now, whenever you see that, of course, you get to realize that you're off the hook. The next few verses I read are not for you. The next few verses I read are for me, for Pastor Reggie, and for Joe Hill, our other elder in this church. So you can kind of fall asleep for just a little bit, but at least pay attention to know what you're holding us accountable to do, okay? To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings who will also share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. There are a number of things that he's already said here that I just need to highlight for you because I'm preaching to myself here. He says, listen, I appeal to you as a fellow elder and I'm thinking, wait a minute, Peter, whatever you are, I'm not. You can't compare yourself to me. Peter says, I witnessed Jesus's sufferings. And I say, no, Peter, I did not. We're different in that. You witnessed Jesus's sufferings. I did not. And Peter says, I share in the hope of eternal life. And I say, well, I do too. Peter himself says, there's no difference between him and me. I feel inadequate all the time. I think that's why Peter says what he says. Who will also share in the glory, glory to be revealed. He says, be shepherds of God's flock that's under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you're willing. What that tells me is that as long as there's a flock, my job is to be a shepherd. As long as there's someone to watch over, my job is to watch over them. As long as there's someone under my care, my job is to care. He says, not because you must, but because you're willing And he says, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. When we were starting the church, we had just begun asking families to give money. And this one family came to one of our meetings. And after everybody else had left, they stayed back just a little bit longer. And the wife and the family said, Jeff, I had a realization suddenly. You know, because they'd been debating whether or not they should give money to the church. She said, Jeff, I had a realization. And I said, really, what was that? She said, you can't possibly be in this for the money. (laughs) And I said, how did you figure that out? And she said, because no one would do this for money. Now, granted, there are a number of people who have used Christianity to make a lot of money. But at least I took encouragement from what she said to me that day. But take a look at this. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. There's a lesson here for church leaders. I'll just give it to you. He says, church leaders, serve, model, and wait 
for a future reward. Joe, Reggie, any other pastor who might be listening to this. Our job is to serve. Our job is to model. And our job is to wait. There's a future reward that's coming. Verse 5. Now he's talking about all the rest of us. In the same way, you who are younger, now I know some of you don't feel young, but just keep reading. Uh, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another, because God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. This is an amazing line, because you see, he says, okay, for those of you who are younger, submit to your elders, but then he goes farther, he says, everyone, all of us are supposed to be in submissive mindset. All of us are supposed to have humility humility towards one another. Why? Because God opposes the proud and he gives grace to the humble. Listen, we hate submission. We hate humility. It's not a thing that we love in our world. It's not a thing we value in people. It's definitely not a thing we value, tend to value in our leaders and we don't value it in ourselves. We love the strong, rugged individual. We don't so much love the person who is humble all the time. We want someone who can take charge, not necessarily someone who seems like they're letting the world sort of run all over them. Humility is not one of our highest values, even though it probably should be. And one of the reasons we don't like it is that we don't believe what Peter just said. Peter said, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Do you know someone who is proud? God is opposed to that person. Do you know someone who is humble? God is finding ways to give that person more grace. Our problem is that when we are humble, we feel like losers. When we're submissive, we feel like losers. And Peter says a very interesting phrase here. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. This is a weird little... Um, metaphor. Because I'll admit that sometimes when I'm humble, it feels like God's hand is on me. Like I've been humiliated by some circumstance and I'm wondering, God, why are you pressing me down? Why is your hand over me? If I could just get out from under God's hand, then maybe I could sprout. If I could just get out from under God's hand, then maybe I could be free to live my life and experience something great. And there have been times in my life when I feel like God's hand is against me, and sometimes I just wish I could just get away. I'm sure Christians in Peter's day felt that way. God, I gave my life to you, and now I'm under this pressure of suffering. I don't know if I can handle it. And he says... Be, be humble under God's mighty hand. His mighty hand feels like pressure, but that's just because we don't know what's supposed to happen next. Because, see, God's hand isn't a hand of pressure. Have you ever seen that claw game? You know, you put in the quarter, you move the joystick, you try to get the toy, then you put in the next quarter and you move the joystick and try to get the same toy. God's hand isn't on you pushing you down. God's hand is over you, ready to lift you up. And if I'm standing over here to this side, trying to be my own thing, trying to do my own thing, 
then God, he can't, he can't get me. The only place to have God lift me up is when I'm under his hand. That's why Peter says, humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand. Peter didn't know about the claw game, but he knows about lifting up that God may lift you up in due time. And so verse 7, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Here's the lesson for us. We embrace humility, trusting God to love us now and lift us in his time. I cast my cares on God because God cares for me. He cares for me now, even in the midst of my hardship. And so I'm going to go ahead and embrace humility. I'm going to go ahead and embrace submission. I'm going to go ahead and embrace this attitude that I'm going to let God do what he wants to do. And I'm going to trust him to love me now and to lift me when it's his time to do so. Verse 8. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. This is an interesting verse because I've heard a lot of Christians use it in a lot of different ways. It's one of those verses that gets quoted out of context repeatedly. You know, the, the kind of thing where someone might be just dealing with life and they'll say, well, you know, God works in mysterious ways or, or you know, God is, is looking to, to help you not to hurt you. You know, you'll hear little phrases like that. And one of the phrases you might hear is, you know the devil, he's prowling around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And a lot of times Christians have a response to this verse that I think is entirely inappropriate, entirely out of the context for what Peter is doing. There are two ways I think our approach to this verse can be inappropriate. Way number one is when we say, Christian paranoia is justified. The devil's out there. He's out there prowling like a roaring lion. And I just have to be constantly on alert. I'm going to find him wherever he is. This is a, this is a Christian hide and seek. And I'm going to just be, he's, he's around here somewhere. The problem is that Peter says the devil is prowling like a lion. The problem with lions is that when they're prowling, they're hiding. I don't know where they are. I can't find them. I'm a stupid antelope. I don't know where the lion is. My job is not to try to find the lion. An antelope that goes searching for the lions is a dead antelope. My job isn't to go out there trying to find the next place where Satan is. And so there's this one attitude of Christian sort of paranoia. I'm going to sort of figure out he's out there and I'm going to be scared of him all the time and I'm going to be looking for him wherever he is. But there's a second Christian response to it. And I call it aggressive warfare. The aggressive warfare that says, I'm just going to stand up against the forces of Satan wherever he rears his ugly head and I'm going to point them out and I'm going to yell at them. And so I'm going to find some person who represents some aspect of demonic activity in this world, and I'm going to 
point my finger at him and I'm going to yell at him. And I'm going to find some Christian that doesn't uphold all of the doctrine that I uphold and I'm going to point my finger and yell at them because the devil prowls around. He could be in that other person who claims to be a Christian. And so they're on constant finger pointing mode, attack mode. These are the two approaches that I've heard people take to this very verse. But notice what Peter says in his context. He says, your devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Your job is to be alert and of sober mind. Why? Because, look at the end of that, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. In other words, everybody's going through the same thing. What are they going through? A Caesar who says, declare that I'm Lord or you're dead. A society that says, give up on the resurrection or you're dead. You see, for them, their suffering wasn't based on how they lived and their moral code. Their suffering wasn't based on whether their race was different. Their suffering was based on one thing and one thing only. The name of Jesus. And so Peter says, the devil is prowling around and he's attacking you and your suffering is the same as everybody else and their suffering was only based on the name of Jesus. In other words, the devil is whatever is opposing the identification of who Jesus is, what he has done for us, and what it means to call him your Lord. Saying Jesus is Lord is right. Everything else is demonic. In other words, I would put it this way. We resist the devil by loyalty to Jesus alone. When my loyalties begin to stray to anything else, when my loyalties go to a doctrinal mindset, when my loyalties go to a particular expression of church worship, when my loyalties go to some political party, when my loyalties go to an individual, my loyalty has become demonic. My loyalty must be to Jesus and Jesus alone. To say Jesus is Lord is resisting the devil. Anything else, if Jesus is not ruling my life, that aspect of my life where he's not in charge is the devil devouring. But let's keep going. Because Peter ends (laughs) with something amazing. He says, And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Our job, doing good in this world in response to suffering, is to hold firm to a glorious promise from a gracious and powerful God. The God of all grace who called you. He chose us for glory even though we now experience hardship. I want to end with these verses. Verse 12 through 14, the last few verses. Peter shifts his tone and he just now is doing the closing words from a letter. He says, With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I've written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. 
She who's in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Again, Peter doesn't know about COVID. He tells us to greet one another with a kiss. That's not happening these days. But he mentions three people. He mentions Silas. Do you remember Silas? Silas was flogged and thrown in prison with a man named Paul in a jail in a city named Philippi. They were Roman citizens and didn't deserve to be flogged, but they were flogged anyway. They were Roman citizens and didn't deserve to be thrown in jail without a trial, but they were thrown in jail anyway. They suffered unjustly. They had a get-out-of-jail-free card and they didn't even play it. They didn't tell anyone they were Roman citizens. They willingly went through the suffering. And in prison that night, they were singing praises to God. When an earthquake came and their chains fell off and the doors opened and a man came in who was the jailer, confronted with the open gates, he was about to kill himself when Paul and Silas said, no, we're all here. Somehow they convinced everybody else to stay too. That jailer became a believer and the church flourished in Philippi. And one of my favorite books in the Bible is the letter Paul wrote to the church in Philippi. Silas was one of the sufferers who brought about that glory. And he's with Peter right now. No wonder he mentioned Silas. Scars all over his back right next to Peter. Peter also mentions Mark. You remember Mark? Mark is literally the guy who, who ran away from Paul and Barnabas when they started this missionary journey. Mark was a relative of Barnabas, and when he saw that Paul was getting more recognition in that early stage of the missionary journey, he decided to leave. We don't know why he decided to leave, but he left. And in fact, Mark's desertion of Paul and Barnabas was so painful to Paul that it turned into the first church split. When Paul and Barnabas decided they were going to go on a second journey, Barnabas said, I want Mark. Paul said, I don't. So Paul chose Silas. Barnabas chose Mark. Mark was literally the cause of the first ever church split. He was literally a deserter. Some people think he was even the kid in the Garden of Gethsemane Gethsemane who runs off naked. He's this embarrassment. He's just this guy who should not be given a second chance and he gets chance after chance. Because God is a God of grace, isn't he? And Peter, more than anyone, knows that sometimes a person needs extra chances. And then he also says, she who's in Babylon. That's Peter talking about the Christians in Rome. Babylon was code word for the early Christians for what Rome was doing to them. And the Christians, in the center of the most evil empire that ever existed on this planet at that time, from Peter's perspective, were sending their greetings to the rest of the Christians. Listen. Peter's letter here is not a letter telling you to endure hardship because it's your calling. Peter's letter is a letter telling us to endure hardship because it's our calling. I want to give you these last few encouraging words. He says, And the God of all grace, who called you 
to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. We, I believe, have been chosen just like Peter was chosen just like Silas was chosen, just like Mark was chosen. I believe we have been chosen by God for this time. I believe we've been chosen by God for this town. I believe we've been chosen by God for this family. I believe we've been chosen by God for this, that we might continue to do good, that we might be a blessing no matter what we're facing, that we might be the people above all other people on this world who know the truth, that the truth sets us free, and who live under the glorious lordship of Jesus and Jesus alone. We are chosen for this. Let us rise up into what we have been chosen to be and to do. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And His plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, Check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.